So we've been in a, a series of talks related to a topic called the Foundations of Mindfulness. And this topic is one of the focuses that the instructions of meditation came through, the Buddha gave. So this whole series of contemplations was considered really significant. It has a lot of material in it that's really useful for getting a handle on what's going on in our minds and how to work with them. So when we look at the four foundations of mindfulness there, the contemplation of our body and Within that, there's many different practices and ways of working with the body. Feeling, mind, and objects and categories of dhamma or phenomena. And when we look at the feeling component of it, what we need to remember is that this Buddhist language of feeling is different from the feeling that we normally associate with. So this feeling is the particular quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral which is different normally when we talk about feeling, we talk about you know moods or emotions or all that stuff, and this is really specific. So far we've talked about the contemplations related to body and feeling, and the last one was on feeling, and that is really an excellent bridge to what we're going to be doing tonight because the objects of mind that arise is often activated by whether we find something pleasant and it activates our wanting it to stay, or we find something unpleasant, and it activates our aversion to wanting to get rid of it, or we find something neutral, and we space out, or we have a relationship of like confusion around it because we're not actually seeing it clearly. So feeling is like a segue for the next bit, which is what we're doing now, which is contemplating what we normally refer to as feeling, which is just everything that arises in our mind the thoughts, the moods, the emotions, the feelings, and all of that stuff that arises in our mind. What's really important and tricky, because it's different from the way we normally relate, is to get the sense that there's the mind, which is knowing, and then there's the object of what is known. That's central to being able to put the pieces together with If you don't get that, not just as an intellectual concept, but some kind of a feeling sense of what that is, it's really hard to move forward with this. So it's a little bit like when we have a mirror, it reflects stuff. And the mirror doesn't care what it reflects. It doesn't care if it's beautiful or if it's ugly or if it smells. You know, it just reflects it. Well, the mind is like the mirror in the sense that it's neutral. It's just able to know stuff. And the objects are like the stuff in the mirror that it reflects. And so when we can begin to get a feeling that that's what we're dealing with, we have a a remarkable resource at our hands. And hopefully that kind of like the power of that will become more clear as we talk a little bit more. So another metaphor for this would be looking at 
adding syrup to water. So you have a glass of water, and then you put Coca-Cola syrup in it, or you put watermelon syrup in it, or you put licorice syrup in it. And then when you drink it, it has the flavor of the syrup. You can't really taste the water because the syrup is much more the thing that we're noticing. Yeah. So the syrup in this kind of situation is like the objects of our mind. And the water is like the mind that actually is knowing the stuff. And so what is helpful and takes time is to begin to get a flavor for the water. To actually know what the water tastes like. And to know that the syrup is something that is added. It's not the water. And when we can get a feeling of how we can move attention back and forth between the quality of just pure water or the flavor of something added to it, then we have a tool at our hands which is just enormously powerful. So let's just see what the Buddha had to say about all of this. So again, when we're using the language of monk, this was meant to be any practitioner. It's not gender-based and it's not precept-based. And so sometimes I use the word monk and sometimes I use the word one because one is really what a, all of us are. We're practitioners who are interested in contemplating this. So how does a monk remain focused in the mind in and of itself? There is a case where a monk, when the mind has passion, discerns that the mind has passion. And when the mind is without passion... One discerns that the mind is without passion. When the mind has aversion, one discerns that the mind has aversion. And when the mind is without aversion, one discerns that the mind is without aversion. When the mind has delusion, one discerns that the mind has delusion. And when the mind is without delusion, one discerns that the mind is without delusion. When the mind is constricted, he discerns that the mind is constricted. And when the mind is scattered, he discerns that the mind is scattered. And when the mind is enlarged, he discerns that the mind is enlarged. And when the mind is not enlarged, he discerns that the mind is not enlarged. When the mind is surpassed, he discerns that the mind is surpassed. And when the mind is unsurpassed, he discerns the mind is unsurpassed. And when the mind is concentrated, he discerns that the mind is concentrated. And when the mind is not concentrated, one discerns that the mind is not concentrated. And when the mind is released, one discerns that the mind is released. And when the mind is not released, one discerns that the mind is not released. In this way, one remains focused internally on the mind in and of itself, or externally on the mind in and of itself, or both internally and externally on the mind in and of itself. Or he remains focused on the phenomena of origination with regard to the mind, on the phenomena of passing away with regard to the mind, or the phenomena of origination and passing away with regard to the mind. Or his mindfulness that there is mind is maintained to the extent in knowledge and remembrance. And one remains independent, unstained by not clinging to anything in the world. And this is how one remains focused on the mind in and of itself. So, what's this all about? It's a fair enough question. You know, I just, I find it, what's it like? It's like, I don't know if you ever had the experience of eating ripe cheese, and when you first tasted it, it's like, you know, what's all the deal with this cheese, you know? 
And then after a while, there's this feeling of, oh my goodness, it's got so much depth and subtlety and flavor to it, and it's like, it's fabulous stuff. When I first started reading these things, it's like, you've got to be joking, what are you talking about? And then after practicing with it, and then understanding what it's actually referring to, and coming back and reading it again, it's like, wow, this is just amazing stuff. So when we look at it and take it apart, you know, he starts with the three roots of suffering and their absence, knowing if they're present or not, okay? And then he goes on to describe the two unwholesome states, that of being contracted or distracted and noting if they're absent or not, okay? And then he goes on to describe the qualities of awakening, and these are like surpassed, concentrated, uh, released, and their absence. What is remarkable about these instructions, absolutely remarkable, are all the things that are not said. Okay? He doesn't say, change what's there. He doesn't say, have an opinion about what's there. He doesn't say, feel bad about yourself about what's there. Okay? The instructions are to know what is present. To know what is present. Now, just take a moment and think about all the times when we feel stuff and we want to change it. Or all the times when we feel stuff and we have an opinion about it. Or all the times when we feel stuff and we use that to define who we take ourselves to be. It's like all of the time. So what this is, is like, okay, imagine a day, one day, just one day, imagine one day where you were allowed to feel anything that you felt, everything that you felt. You had carte blanche permission to feel every single thing that you felt, and it was okay. You didn't need to have an opinion about it. You didn't need to change it. You didn't need to make it go away. You didn't need to form an opinion about yourself because it was there. It was totally allowed to be there. Can you see? Do you get it? Do you get a sense of like, oh my God. (laughs) What a totally different world that would be to be able to feel everything that you felt and have it be okay. So what's happening here is like the Buddha's offering us a crowbar and a falcrum, and what we're able to lift is the stuff that most of us feel really heavy, and that's the stuff that we actually experience, the stuff in our minds, okay? And that the, the, the crowbar is through the power of observation, of just knowing what it is, and suspending judgment. And that becomes possible when we are able to see the difference between knowing something and identifying with it. When we can't see the difference, then it's like flypaper. As soon as there's a thought, immediately we stick to it, and we think that's who we are. But a thought is a thought. A feeling is a feeling. A mood is a mood. It arises because of conditions. It exists for a while, and it dissipates. And there's the capacity of learning to recognize these things for what they are, to not form an identity around them when they're there. So, all right, the big Buddhist baddies are lust, hatred, and delusion. 
you know. And what the Buddha is giving us permission is to feel them all. He's not saying you need to get rid of them or that you need to consider yourself a failed meditation practitioner because they're present. You need to know when they're there. So what we also need to see is is that this is held in context. This is a meditation instruction. This is not an absolute dictate on life. So there's lots of times and situations where we need to intervene. We need to actually develop some balance. We need to actually do make decisions. We need to actually control where our mind is going to. We need to make choices and act from a place where we're not coming from harm or unskillfulness. So we have to see that these meditation instructions are taking place within a whole framework which talks about living with skillfulness and not harming and understanding things from a perspective where there is a vision. It's not absolute. It's not that we sit there and don't have opinion ever for the rest of our lives. Okay? But there is this space within the meditation context where it is possible to allow whatever it is that we're feeling and not give ourselves a hard time about it. And I don't know about you, but for me it's like, ah, such a relief. You know, because I have all kinds of ideas about things that I'm supposed to feel and not supposed to feel and what kind of person I am if I feel one thing or not the other thing. You know? And then there's this kind of war that goes on to try and carve out the bad things and pull in the good things and keep the kind of like under control. And it's like it's totally out of control all the time. And so just learning how to relax with it, you know, the whole catastrophe and feel at ease with it is like, oh, wow, that's really quite a relief. So in the last part of the sutta, the Buddha is talking about knowing the mind in and of itself internally or externally. Okay, so what's the deal with that? You know, we can know what we're thinking and feeling ourselves. And, but most of us, I would assume, though I can't be sure until I've spoken to you directly, don't know what's actually happening in another person's mind. Okay? We can't read what's going on in another person's mind. Some people can. But what this is talking about is, is, is that we can oscillate our attention from what we know is going on in ourselves to the observation of behavior and body language and tones of voice that give us a sense of what's going on in the other person. Obviously, we can't know for sure until we actually have verification, but we can have a sense. And that can be with people. That can also be with animals. You can tune in to what you sense is going on for them. And so our attention can oscillate between what's going on inside and what's going on outside. That's what that's referring to. So, with what I've said so far, are there any questions? Do you understand? Are there places that don't make any sense? Are there things that need to be clarified? Now, is this because everybody's totally cool, or is this because you're afraid to talk? (laughs) It's, It's a lot. It's a radically different way than most of us are used to actually thinking, or thinking or framing things. You know, it's a whole new kettle of fish, really, to start thinking about things in this way. Yes. So, um, I was surprised when somebody had asked the Dalai Lama um, how he avoided becoming angry, and he said, I do feel anger. It just depends on what you do. So that's a brilliant example. Here you have a highly accomplished meditation master. Highly accomplished. And he feels things. And he acts with them in a skillful way. 
And so it's often not the case that a person no longer feels things. It's a case that a person becomes skillful with what it is that they're feeling. And so, you know, I don't know how it is for you, but, you know, I had this kind of fantasy that I'd start meditating and then there would be like this kind of magic wand. It would go whoop, whoop, and everything that was unwanted would disappear and everything that was wanted would come and everybody would love me. You know, it's like a kind of three-year-old fantasy of like heaven, you know. And it just really, it doesn't work that way. But what does happen is, is that there's a greater capacity to be with the stuff that we don't want to be with. And there's a greater capacity to respond with skillfulness, both internally and externally, to whatever's going on. And then the love bit is more kind of a sense of, well, that's a place that I can rest in, rather than an expectation that I can have about interactions with people. It's something that I know that I can abide in, rather than it's something that I can expect from others. It totally turns it on its head. You are halfway down the road. You are totally halfway down the road. And so sometimes what it is is a question of damage control rather than other things. Yeah. But what is needed is to understand that. So first of all, if when there are experiences of not doing that, then it gives contrast to when you are doing that. Okay. So when you're totally identified with what's going on in your mind, that will have a completely different feeling to it than if you're able to observe what's going on in your mind. Yeah? And you can know that by the way you feel in your body. So part of the space mechanism is to learn to develop awareness of your body and to locate the different way these two different things feel because they will feel totally different in your body. You know? Totally different. So it might still be that the same thing that you're observing or the same thing is like the content is still like anger or fear or lust or whatever it is, you know. But the way it feels in your body when you've identified with it and the way it feels when you're observing it is totally different. So that's why I keep coming back to body as a touchstone because that's part of the way that we get more space. And then when we have experiences of that, you know, just glimmers of that, then we can know that when we're stuck into something, there can be a voice saying, this is not the whole story. You know, So there can be a voice of wisdom that brings a memory that uses that in contrast to what you're seeing with. Because you know, we can go into this whole flip of, you know, this is totally the truth. This is absolutely real. This is absolutely a catastrophe. And I'm in the middle of it. And then there's got to be a small wisdom of voice saying, is it really like that? Really? Is this really what's going on? And that small voice then brings a little bit more space of thinking, well, yeah, I'm not so sure. You know, it appears that way, but it might appear differently in 10 minutes or after I've gone for a run or actually I've had something to eat or actually after I've, you know, had some time with my animals, you know, it might appear totally different. So part of it is the kind of patience factor, 
and then making much out of those moments when there is the observation and really thinking, what does that feel like when I didn't get stuck in? When lust was strong or desire was strong or aversion was strong and there was just the ability to know it. It didn't have to manifest as an immediate direct action or response. But, you know, this is why, I mean, practice. This is the reason why we call it practice. Because it's not, it's like, you know, none of us get this, like, first go and it's done. You know, so there's a gold key that's being handed out and then we forget it. And we leave it in the garbage and that, you know, we don't remember that it's there. We don't know where the lock is. It's like, you know, we just don't, we don't put it together. You know, we just don't remember that there's something that's been given that's just absolutely precious and completely transformative. Because we're just used to getting stuck in. You know, that's the familiar thing. We just get stuck in, it arises, and that's what's happening, and that's who I am. I'm pissed, I want, I'm confused, I'm freaked out, I'm overwhelmed, and that's the deal. That's what I am. You know? Do you find that humorous when you catch yourself doing that? Humorous and sad, so it all doesn't matter. <laughs> I think the more I catch myself, the more humorous it becomes. Yeah. Like, what am I doing over there? Right. No better. Yeah. Not time over there. Right. So, a lot. It's a lot, yeah. What I want to do is to move into this topic in another way. So, the fourth foundation of mindfulness then starts talking about the things that we experience and how to work with them. So, the point of the fourth foundation of mindfulness is not to go from feeling okay about it to feeling bad about it. It's to go from seeing it and developing skill with it. So the fourth foundation of mindfulness is often translated as contemplating objects of mind. And I've never liked that translation. You know, I've never, it's never made sense to me. How the third foundation is supposed to be contemplating mind and the fourth foundation is contemplating objects of mind. It just doesn't make any sense. So I was quite happy to find out that for Bhikkhu Bodhi, he also didn't like that translation. Because Bhikkhu Bodhi is, I don't know if any of you know him, but he's like, one of the most preeminent scholars in the world in the Theravada tradition. He's translated most of the scriptures. And so he's, you know, really, really phenomenal scholar monk. You know, so when we look at the actual categories of the four foundations, they break things up into hindrances, aggregates, sense bases, enlightenment factors, and noble truths. So it's looking at categories in these particular terms. And one of the things that all of them have in common is is that they are groups of phenomena when contemplated bring about the realization of the Dhamma in the way the Buddha had intended, which is towards liberation. Okay, So probably a more accurate translation would be contemplations of Dhamma or contemplations of phenomena. So when we look at them, in some ways there's a sequence to the way these groupings are together. You know, the five hindrances are the, is what really obstructs wisdom and concentration from developing or ripening. And when they are in abeyance, when they're not actually active or dominating our minds, then the possible is possible to focus on concentration. And that concentration then makes it possible to look at the aggregates, form and feeling and perception and formations of our mind and consciousness. 
this gives rise to understanding and familiarity with the sense bases. You know, eye and ear and sound and nose and smell and mouth and taste and t- touch with the body. Yeah. When we have some capacity to focus and to concentrate and to see things, what's happening, then the seven factors of enlightenment ripen. And as these ripen and they are coming into balance, then it allows us to look and see the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths, when we can realize them, is what releases us from suffering. So there's a kind of sequence that moves through these categories that allows us to move from being entrenched in stuff and stuck into being able to see things clearly and free. So I thought what we could do, if it's all right with you, is just to move on and talk a little bit more about the hindrances because that's the kind of like the place where we get stuck a lot. That's the stuff that often is the place where the flypaper is really grabbing hold. So the five hindrances are, the first one is desire or lust, and this can be garden variety stuff or just really intense stuff. And ill will or aversion, and the same, it can be just the mildest kind of pulling away and not wanting to feel something or, you know, just wanting to murder, you know. The third is sleepiness or dullness. And the fourth is restlessness or anxiety and worry. And the fifth is doubt and uncertainty. And this is not, you know, what kind of color you're going to wear in the morning or whether you have applesauce or peaches. It's doubt as to whether or not there's actually a benefit from practicing, that there is a way of being free and that there are enlightened beings. It's a kind of doubt of the like the fundamental core principles of these teachings. So let me go on and read what the Buddha was saying. So how does one remain focused on phenomena in and of themselves? So there is a case where one remains focused on phenomena in and of themselves with reference to the five hindrances. And how does one remain focused on phenomena in and of themselves with reference to the five hindrances? Well, there is a case when there's sensual desire present within, and one discerns that there's sensual desire present within me, or there being no sensual desire present within, one discerns that there's no sensual desire present within. And one discerns how there is the arising of unarisen sensual desire, and one discerns how there is the abandoning of sensual desire once it has arisen, and one discerns how there is no future arising of sensual desire that has been abandoned. And then this is a repeated, this whole formula is repeated for the remaining hindrances, ill will, sleepiness, dullness, restlessness, anxiety, worry, doubt, and uncertainty. And then it goes through the same thing. Remains focused internally on phenomena in and of themselves or externally. Uh, remains focused on the phenomena of origination with regard to the phenomena, on phenomena of passing away. Or mindfulness that there are phenomena is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance. And he remains independent, unsustained by anything in the world. And this is how one remains focused on phenomena in and of themselves with reference to the five hindrances. So what's really helpful is, again, to put this in context. Nearly all practitioners, even extremely experienced meditators, deal with hindrances of various different kinds and feel doubt about their own capacity to realize the end of suffering. Okay? So this is like, you know, this is the stuff we're dealing with. So what's really helpful is to generate the right attitude about it, because this is it, you know? So rather than feel bad about it, what's really helpful is to see them as an opportunity to develop skill and resources, 
vigilance and patience and compassion for others who suffer. You know, it's like we're all in the same boat, you know. And we might have totally different stories and contexts, but, you know, mostly the stuff that we experience as human beings is quite similar, you know. So if we look at it in another way, when I was visiting in Berkeley, my friend, she had quite a, a system for recycling and for compost. And in Berkeley, they have a citywide collection of compost. And they collect all of the garbage that you're, you know, from, from your food scraps, all of the cooked food. They even can collect bones and the newspapers also can go into the, into the compost. And they take it and they grind it all up and they put it into a huge pile. And after some months, that pile is turned to compost. And so the stuff that's smelly and disgusting and gross comes back this absolutely, incredibly aromatic, black, beautiful compost. It's just gorgeous stuff. And when I was living in the monastery, I think I was an Anagarica, so I was a, I was a novice nun. And in England, we had lots of oak trees, and the oak trees would uh, lose their leaves. And so we had huge piles of leaves. And before I had gone to the monastery, one of the things that I loved was, I loved was making compost piles. So I decided I was going to make a compost pile out of all the leaves. And naturally, you know, the compost pile I made was a megalomaniac compost pile. So it was like 20 feet by 30 feet by 10 feet tall. You know, and so it's like, you know, that's a lot of leaves. And so in order for the leaves to decompose, we needed a source of nitrogen. Well, one of the greatest sources of nitrogen going is urine. Okay. So I made a plea in the monastery that everyone save their urine and bring it to me. So I had this huge vat of urine that I was collecting so that I could pile it on the, the compost pile. So I remember walking down the path. And Ajahn Sujito and Ajahn Sumedho were walking towards me. And the two of them were, like, falling over with laughter. And I said, what's the deal? And they said, you're the urine queen. (laughs) You know, so the stuff that normally is gross, you know, it goes down the toilet, you can put it together in a particular way. And if you aerate the compost pile, you can end up with compost. You know, it was great. So when we look at this stuff in that kind of a way, that it's not that it's bad, it's just that we need to hold it in the right context and work with it in the right way, and then it becomes something which actually gives us an enormous skill and fortitude and capacity to bring forward the kind of stuff that, you know, that's useful for ourselves and for the people around us. So when we're talking about discerning how there is the arising of unarisen sensual desire, Okay, what we need to look at is, is that in, for desire, the most important factor is careless attention to pleasant feeling and attractive objects. So in the same way that our mind can get latched on to a feeling, we can latch on to a particular quality around something, all right? And so the opposite, the conditions that are conducive to the abandoning of sensual desire is learning how to direct our attention to the qualities are unbeautiful about the thing that we find attractive. Now, I just want to mention something. This classic practice of bringing asuba to lust is classically described as looking at the unattractive qualities of the body, all right? 
Now, one of the things which is really interesting, and it can be just a gender difference, is, is, is that what actually triggers sexual desire seems to be different depending on gender differences. For men, it tends to be very visually activated. And for women, it tends to be much more related to emotional closeness. Okay? I mean, we can check it out, you know, figure out whether this is in fact a gender difference or not, or whether it's, you know, what's going on here. But what's important to recognize is that for people for whom sexual desire arises in response to emotional closeness, if we start dissecting bodies, we can do that till the cows come home. That's not actually where the problem is, okay? That's not actually what's activating us. So if we're wanting to have some perspective on those feelings, and the origination of them is around emotional closeness, the longing for it, the hunger for it, the wanting it, then we need to look at how emotional closeness isn't lasting or ultimately satisfying in order to have some perspective on it. Okay? And that's why, you know, I think it's helpful to have women teachers occasionally teaching because the perspective that they have is different than the men. <laughs> you know, our systems are wired up somewhat differently. I mean, not absolutely differently, but in some ways our conditioning is different. So we need to be very clear about what is beautiful to us is to apply the unbeautiful. And that helps bring some perspective around desire and lust. So one learns to cultivate and then devotes one's attention to the meditation on the unbeautiful. And then one guards one's senses. So that's like, you know, one does not put oneself in a situation where one's going to be triggered. So if you're trying to give up, cookies, you don't go buy the cookie store that's got smells that are generating three blocks away, you know. If you're trying to give her up cigarettes, you don't hang out with people who are smoking. If you're trying to give up beer, you don't hang out around bars or around people who are drinking. So it's not to become a ninny or a goody-goody or prissy or prude. It's to be able to be skillful with the stuff that actually knocks us out of balance, Right? You know, in the same way that if you're in a committed relationship, it's really important to be skillful about the way you bring your attention to somebody you find is attractive. Okay? There's nothing wrong with finding somebody else attractive. And the reason why one's doing that is because it's really important to protect the healthy elements that are there in committed relationships and not to cause pandemonium if one lets one's attention just run rampant. So this is developing skill within ourselves and then allowing that skill to create an environment of safety around us so that we become somebody that we are not frightened of ourselves, we're not frightening for other people, and then the whole kind of sense of remorse is not something that we need to navigate of the stuff that we did that we really feel badly about. So there's what's sensual desire. The next thing that's really helpful is moderation in eating. So one of the ways that sensual desire gets our inability to be discerning is, is when we eat so much food that our whole system becomes dull. And then the last couple have to do with noble friendship and suitable conversation. And so, you know, there is just, you know, when one's filled with wanting, you know, hungry for wanting, and then one hangs out with good friends, the whole thing can just ease out. You know, or when the conversation is about really what's going on or about stuff that allows one's attention to incline to what's really noble. The whole thing can just like ease out. So 
in this context, you know, we can see that, you know, one of the things that the Buddha talked about was just the incredible value of noble friendship and noble companionship, as saying it wasn't just the half of what was going on in this life of awakening, it was the whole of it. And so, you know, in the in the AA program, Bill W. and Dr. Bob totally had it right when he was wanting to make community as a central part of recovery. And the Buddha had it right to make Sangha as an essential part of waking up. It's like we can't do this in isolation from each other. We absolutely need each other's support because some of the habits of what we're dealing with are just way too strong. So the other thing about this whole statement discerning how there is no future arising of sensual desire that has been abandoned. Like, what's that all about? Okay? What's that referring to is the stage of enlightenment where sensual desire no longer has the capacity to knock ones out of balance. So within the way of looking in the Theravadan, there's different stages of enlightenment. And so with Desire, sensuous desire, the desire for sensual pleasures, that gets uprooted at the third stage of enlightenment. But the subtle forms of craving, the craving for being or the craving for non-being, those are uprooted at the last stage of enlightenment. So, you know, listen, folks, we are got to be in there for the long haul. I mean, this is going to be around for a while. So there's going to be no magic wand that's going to make this go voop voop and it's just out of here. It's going to be practice until this stuff is just uprooted. It's a while. So when we look at the second hindrance of uh, experiencing aversion, the classic antidote to that is cultivating metta. So bringing kindness to oneself and being able to learn how to generate that and spread it around. So many of us, you know, this is not an easy practice. We don't think it's okay to bring metta to ourselves. You know, it's okay to be kind to everybody else in the world, but somehow there's something selfish or weird about being kind to ourselves. And then the practice is to generally spread it to spiritual teachers or people that you care about or to then to people who are neutral and then to ones who activate anger, who actually have done you wrong or who have hurt you or who have harmed you. And when one engages in this practice of generating metta or kindness in this way, it's not in any way to condone the unskillfulness of somebody else, you know. What it is more is like the recognition that if we're grabbing hold of a burning coal, we're going to get burnt, you know? And so we're wanting to learn how when we've got something that's hot, you don't grab hold of it. And so the kindness is the kind of the way of putting a glove on that we're not actually grabbing hold and having contact with something that's hot. It neutralizes it. And so, again, there's a whole list of things, of the conditions that are helpful in finding skill with this. And that, you know, so there's meditating on loving kindness and then devoting oneself to developing loving kindness. And then considering that everything that everyone does is their own responsibility and they have to deal with the consequences of that when we also can really get a sense of how harmful anger is when we hold on to it, 
it can help us let go of it. So when we can get a sense of how much it makes us sick, how much it makes us tense, how much it makes us unhappy, it can really help us let go. And again, you know, the noble friendship and conversation becomes like a staple in all of these. That when we hang out with good friends, when our minds are filled up with just aversion or hatred or wanting revenge or irritation or ill will, it just cools the whole thing out. So the simile with this is is that if somebody is extremely sick, really, really sick, there's nothing that makes them feel comfortable or well. You know, they don't have an appetite, they don't want to go anywhere, they don't want to look at anything. They're just absolutely uncomfortable. That's what holding on to anger is like. When we look at sleepiness and dullness, you know, the most important factor is the careless attention when these things are arising as to what keeps them there. And then the conditions that are helpful for helping them release, again, is is that understanding the connection between the food that we eat and the amount of food that we eat and the way that it affects our energy levels. Changing our body posture. So if we're sitting and we're kind of in a comatose state, it's helpful to stand up. Sometimes it's helpful to walk. And thinking of the perception of light so we can bring in like the sense of the sun and bring it to our minds and just allow the sun to to be as if it's bright day, staying in fresh air. There's, you know, stories of people in the monastery, they're trying to stay up and they come up with all kinds of strange things that they do. They they sit in the meditation in weird hours and they have a book on their head and, you know, and if they're nodding, because if you've stayed up for hours and you're nodding and the book falls on the floor and crashes, then you know that you're sleeping. Some, what's that? And some monks were going and they were sitting on an edge of a dock and so that the possibility of falling into the water would like really wake them up. And some of them sat on an edge of a well, so like if they fell, it was like really a project to get out of the well. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that we have to do is we have to also be sensitive and sensible because, you know, one time, sometimes people come on expectation that if they just push through things that they're going to be able to have enough energy. Sometimes people come and they're sick or they're exhausted or they've been stressed out or they've been through horrendous stuff and they need to understand the difference between the kind of sleepiness that energy needs to be applied to and the kind of sleepiness where rest needs to be applied to. So one needs wisdom. Anyway, there's more, but I think that's probably enough for tonight because I'm having a feeling people are saturated already. <laughs> but what... What's that? Using out of your pores. Yeah. So what I'd like to do is have a break and then come back. We can circle around and have a discussion about what we've talked about so far and see where we're at. Okay? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.